Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Nathan. Hey, man. It's Luke. Hi, man. Hey, guess what album was number one on the Billboard charts 30 years ago <laughs> this week? No, I don't remember. Tone Loke, Loked After Dark. That was number one? Number one album on the Billboard charts after like six or seven weeks of Debbie Gibson being the number one record, Tone Loke. It is so funny how musical tastes evolve. Like, dude, if you would have told me that I would be listening to like Middle Eastern surf jazz now, it just... <laughs> It would make zero sense, but it does make sense to me now as a damn near 40-year-old. You know? I know. It's funny, man, because you're the one that introduced me to hip-hop. Yep, yep. And now you've strayed so far. <laughs> anyway, I just thought you'd want to know that. I needed to know that. Thank you. Yeah. All right, we're going to jump in. All right, have fun, buddy. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 1, Episode 9, Trench Coats, Tchotchkes, and True Love. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, April 15, 1989. Hello, fellow travelers down memory lane, and welcome to Episode 9 of 30 Pop. I've been very excited about this episode for a while now, as this week we're looking back 30 years at the release of what I believe to be one of the greatest movies of the 1980s. Cameron Crowe's directorial debut, Say Anything, starring the amazing John Cusack and Ione Skye. Before we jump into an entire episode of Say Anything goodness, though, a few other things to know about this week in 1989. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, after five weeks at the top, Debbie Gibson's Electric Youth was replaced as the number one album in the country by the debut studio album from rapper-slash-actor Tone Loke, entitled Loked After Dark. The album sold over two million copies, largely because of the massive single Wild Thing, which, interestingly, was written largely in part by another notable hip-hop artist, Marvin Young, also known as Young MC and which sampled music from Van Halen's song, Jamie's Cryin', which was used without permission and eventually cost Tone Loke and company nearly $200,000 in lawsuit settlement fees. The number one single on the Billboard charts this week was the incredibly catchy breakout single from the horrifically named falsetto singing group Fine Young Cannibals, She Drives Me Crazy. I've included a link to the super bizarre music video for that song in the show notes for this episode. But we'll wait till a later episode to dive deep on these guys, as they'll be really dominating the Billboard charts when we get closer to summer. A major release in country music this week in 1989 was the self-titled debut from the one and only Garth Brooks, which featured the hits If Tomorrow Never Comes, The Dance, and Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old. This album is certified diamond, selling over 10 million copies in the U.S. and more than 13 million worldwide, and it still isn't even his best-selling album, which would release barely a year later. A few sports headlines from this week. 
In golf, Nick Faldo won the 53rd U.S. Masters Tournament, shooting a 283. And in baseball, Ricky Henderson stole his 800th career base. Tragically, at the Sheffield Soccer Stadium in England, 96 Liverpool fans were crushed to death, while 766 more were injured in what remains the greatest tragedy in British sporting history, the Hillsborough disaster. I was only nine years old and had absolutely no idea this happened, but my heart still goes out to those affected by this horrific event. It's such a sad thing, and while I typically try to keep this show pretty upbeat, it felt wrong not to at least mention something so significant. But moving on, the number one movie at the box office this week for the second week in a row was the baseball classic Major League starring Charlie Sheen. And now we've sufficiently recapped the week and we can get to the good stuff. Say anything. This week I got to sit down with one of the biggest Say Anything fans I know, my dear friend, singer, songwriter, producer, and engineer, Latifa Alatas, to look back at this quintessential piece of pop culture greatness. Here's our conversation. Latifa, welcome back to 30 Pop. So great to be here, Luke. We had you with us a couple of weeks ago to talk about Madonna today, Say Anything. And I know I use the word iconic way too much on this show, but sometimes you can't avoid it. This is one of the most iconic films of the 80s. Yes. And I just want to hear from you, what about this film was significant for you or has been significant for you? What does this movie make you feel? I feel like, and I am not lying, because I was seven or eight when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. This was the first movie I ever watched that made me like really want to have a boyfriend or like have romance in my life. I am not lying. You cannot watch this movie and not just want to desperately fall in love as a teenager. <laughs> like it is, <laughs> even if you're not a teenager. Even if you're not, you're like, I don't even know. I don't get it. I don't know what it is, but I have to have it in my I life. Want it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So desperately and this is early on cameron crow mm-hmm. john cusack is brilliant i mean i really love his movies i really love them all of course this might be it's definitely one of my favorites the soundtrack's incredible mm-hmm. i mean it's what introduced me to peter gabriel which then started a very long love affair with peter gabriel's music so that's another thing this not only made me want to fall in love it introduced me to like one of my touchstone artists in my life mm-hmm. which is a really big deal and i mean i don't think anybody like, if you haven't seen the movie, you're somehow familiar with the scene of John Cusack holding a boombox over his head, playing, In your eyes, the light, the heat in your eyes. Jeremy Piven is also in Say Anything. He's hysterical in it. Joan Cusack also is in it because she's like in every movie, I feel like, with John. Mm-hmm. Ione Sky. I think the writing, this is what I was telling you earlier. I think this is one of the most clever scripts where like just casual conversation is right. hysterical. Mm-hmm. The party scene. So he asked her out and he takes her to this party and she's never been to like really a high school party because she's the kid who's like valedictorian mm-hmm. and it's like the overachiever. They literally list oceanography as like one of her interests before she gives like the valedictorian speech. And like the whole like I think it's like a 10, 20 minute party scene is so funny. I think like every other movie that was like about a high school party probably stems from this like party mm-hmm. scene. It's like Can't Hardly Wait is probably inspired by this 10 to 20 minute party scene in this movie. I just, like, I'm even having those feelings that somehow you only have as a teenager that, like, people might describe them as butterflies, but they manifest in your belly. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm starting to have those now just, like, thinking about that movie. So I guess you don't only have them as a teenager. (laughs) That's great news. Oh, my God. I didn't know they could come back. (laughs) 
I just think it's hysterical. I, it really was the first time I realized that I wanted to fall in love, I think, was watching this movie. So a couple of weeks ago when you were on, you were able to leave a message for Madonna. Oh, my god! Is there anything you'd like to say to Cameron, John, or Ione? I think I would like to dedicate this dedication <laughs> to a Mr. Cameron Crowe because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I would like to say, Cameron – you probably heard this before, but in case you haven't, you're a really good writer, man. <laughs> I, would, I would hope that he's heard that or that he's just pretty confident at himself at this and point. And I would like career. to tell you that the average person who has a better than average sense of humor <laughs> really gets you. Yeah. I see you. And I see you in like your jokes that are in between line jokes. Like yeah. it's just – I'm just thinking about all the movies, Almost Famous. That's a great one. Yeah. And also, I respect your taste in music because I have to believe that he is like intensely married to the soundtrack because the soundtrack is such right. a big part of the actual narrative. Mm-hmm. I will say that Peter Gabriel, like the feeling of I want to fall in love is also closely tied to how wonderful that song is. Right. And I don't think anybody can listen to that song and not feel romantic about something. And especially because of that scene. I mean, the, oh. it's what you like when I think of the 80s. Yes. That's what I think of. I think of him, trench coat, boombox over his head, you know, the whole thing. I will say I feel like – I guess trench coats are sort of making like a fashion comeback now. Like they're kind of like in places, but they're like a little more flattering fitted trench coats. Mm-hmm. I've never been a big trench coat fan, but John Cusack really pulls it off. Yeah. This is not where I anticipated He's this conversation going. He's got some keys on it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming back. Yeah. Can't wait to have you on again. Yeah. Super fun. We'll see you next time. Bye. I'll confess, I had to Google the word tchotchkes after this conversation, something I wouldn't have been able to do 30 years ago. I also wouldn't have been able to spell it. T-C-H-O-T-C-H-K-E-S, if you're curious. Anyway, back to say anything. After Latifah and I chatted, I reached out to John Cusack's people to see if, by any chance, he'd be willing to chat on the phone for a few minutes about the 30th anniversary. And to my great surprise and pleasure, he was up for it. We only had a few minutes to talk, as he is monumentally busy with various actory things, but I was very thankful for the opportunity to chat with him. So here he is, Lloyd Dobler himself, actor John Cusack. John Cusack, welcome to 30 Pop. Hi, Luke. Thanks so much for being on today. My pleasure. So we're looking back 30 years at Say Anything, in which you play the ultimate nice guy, Lloyd Dobler. I've heard in past interviews that you were initially hesitant to make this film. I'm curious, what was it about the script or the story or this character in particular that made you say yes to this film? I think, you know, um, I like the script a little bit, but I I sort of felt like uh, the character was a little underwritten in some ways, even though it was a terrific script. I mean, mm-hmm. just for me, what I wanted to do. So I sort of worked on the character with Cameron and rewrote it a bit just to give it a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a darker worldview, you know, or a more fitting, you know, worldview. And then I said, yes. That's interesting. Yeah. We hear a lot about what actors sort of bring of themselves into the characters they play. But you've talked before about the ways in which Lloyd sort of opened you up. So I'd love to hear a bit about not only what you brought to the character of Lloyd Dobler, but what you took away from this character. I think probably just um, tapping into your, you know, tapping into the side of yourself that's uh, 
the most generous, I think. Hmm. How do you mean? I don't know. Like everybody has uh, different parts of your personality. And so that just reminds you of the place when you're sort of at your best, when you're, you're the you're most generous with other people. I recently watched the film through with the commentary that you guys recorded, I guess at the 20 year anniversary. And Cameron Crowe talks quite a bit about how much he sort of learned as a first time director from you. You know, you had tremendous experience at this point as an actor. I've done The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Eight Men Out. Let's see, I think Better Off Dead. I can't remember. Oh, the journey of Maddie Can. I think I'd, I'd done some films and worked with some some good folks already. I did Sixteen Candles. Right. So I'd worked with some people, and I'd done a lot of theater before that. But the question is, what did I learn from the making the movie? What did you learn, and sort of what did you bring? That so when Cameron Crowe talks about what he learned as a director, I'm curious. You know, he mentions you a lot. Kind of what he learned as a director from you on the set of this film. I'm curious, sort of what the two of you learned from one another. I think more about. You know, there's a process in which actors sort of thrive, and it's really just how to create the optimal conditions for good things to happen for actors. And, uh, you know, I was very spoiled by working with Rob Reiner at an early age, and he was an actor, so he knew exactly what actors needed in order to do well. So I just tried to help him, from what I knew, create the optimal conditions for good things to happen. So you're touring a bit now, correct, in support of the 30th anniversary of the film? Uh, yeah, we're doing a couple. Uh, I think we're doing some. We're doing uh, this company called me and asked me to do some, and uh, we're doing High Fidelity, Gross Point Blank, and Say Anything. And I think in the fall we might do some other ones. And so I said, as long as people have fun, and um, they seem to enjoy watching the movies in a big, theater, you know, a nice theater with great sound systems, good prints, and then the Q and A's get a little rowdy and we open up the mics to the audience and people ask whatever they want. And um, people seem to be having, I said, as long as people have a good time, I'll do them. Perfect. John, thank you so much for being on the show and for playing such an incredible character in Lloyd Dobler. Best of luck with the tour. And I hope that we get to talk to you again down the road. All right, man. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. If you're interested in spending an evening with John Cusack, check out the link to his tour dates in the show notes for this episode. And if you're in Houston, be sure to follow 30 Pop on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a chance to win tickets to his upcoming Say Anything screening and Q&A at Jones Hall. A few days after our conversation, I had the great joy of getting to talk to his Say Anything sweetheart, actress Ioni Skye. And she was every bit as kind and wonderful as you'd imagine the person to play Diane Court would be. So I'm so excited to share our conversation. Ioni Sky, thank you so much for being a part of 30 Pop. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. I'm so excited to be able to have you as we look back 30 years at Say Anything. So you play the role of the lovely Diane Court. How old were you when you shot this film? I was 16, 17. Maybe I was 17. That's incredible to me. The reason I ask is because one of my favorite things about this film is the depth that you guys go to in developing these characters. I feel like there's so many films in the 80s where you have like nerdy guy gets hot girl or nerdy girl becomes hot girl or something. And both of your characters are so well-rounded 
and sort of not caricatures of themselves. And I'm just curious, as a 17-year-old, how did you approach that role? Well, I think I sort of realized that these were sides of Cameron Crowe a little bit. And there was sort of excitement about Cameron because he was this kind of, you know, amazing writer. And he had started working pretty young and he was so intelligent and he was sort of, you know, a whiz kid in a way. And Diane Court was kind of like that. Somebody who was sort of smart in certain ways beyond her group. And then you have this sort of unconventionally like handsome guy. And so I think Cameron also felt like he didn't fit the bill for like the jock or the, you know, movie star kind of guy and, Mm -hmm. you know, John Cusack. So I think I kind of just started recognizing maybe what this character was kind of asking of me. And then there was like this, I more had kind of a single mother and in the script it was a single father, but that's sort of easy to sort of relate to that kind of close relationship where you're both, I mean, I had a brother as well, so it's a little different, but that kind of very tight relationship with a parent when it's sort of just the two of you against the world. One of the things I love is your relationship in the film to your father. So played by John Mahoney, who is was a brilliant actor. I'm curious how that was. Well, him and John, actually, Cusack. I mean, you come into this film as a 17-year-old. John Cusack's already done like 16 Candles. I mean, he's done some pretty major films at that point. Was there anxiety? Like, how did you feel kind of going into this film with such sort of mega actors? Yeah, I was very intimidated more by John and Joan Cusack for some reason, and Louis mm. Taylor even. But for some reason, John Mahoney, I didn't feel nervous around him. I don't know. He's so, not that John Cusack and Joan were at all like intimidating as people, like they were just amazing. But right. there's something about John Mahoney being older. I admired him, but I never felt nervous around him because he was just so friendly and lovely. And maybe because John Cusack was like kind of closer to my age, I felt very nervous and worried that I wasn't as good and they would think I wasn't good. And like I viewed them as kind of these very brave actors, John Cusack and his sister, and that I was just not interesting like they were, you know, I had that Mm. hang up a little bit, but it was still I mean, I had a great time. It wasn't, it didn't ruin things for me. Well, my guess is that it, it actually probably plays well into the character of Diane Court. Because one of the things I love about this character, when I talk about the depth that I see in the character, and I'm not an actor or like a critic of any sort, but what I see when I watch the film is this girl who's got basically everything going for her. She's very smart, she's very pretty. But you also, I mean, from the very kind of opening scene, your insecurities are also sort of on display. You know, you're nervous about how your joke's going to land. It lands with your dad, but it doesn't land with your class. And you just sort of see all of that very real teenage lack of self-confidence. And I just think that's such a well-rounded character. Yeah. And I think John's character is very similar in that, you know, like I said, he's not like a major jock. He's a kickboxer, but he's not, you know, he's not captain of the football team. He's not a cliche. And so with that, with each of your characters being so well-developed, I think it makes the love that you two experience in the film so believable. I know. It's nice because, well, it is two people going for, I mean, at first, it's that thing of not, I think, Diane Court, I'm sort of unsure of what he's like, but it's, yeah, it's really nice that it's two kind of misfits 
seeing, you know, the brilliance in each other. So I watched the film with the commentary. I guess it was like the 20th anniversary commentary with you and John and Cameron. And somebody made a comment. I think John made a comment about the two of you. There was probably a real connection between the two of you as you sort of are falling in love on screen. There was a little bit of that maybe internally between the two of you, but that I think you said you had a boyfriend who was sort of lingering on set. (laughs) Yeah, I had a boyfriend... And I don't know that he was around that much. It was I was dating Anthony Kiedis. Oh, wow. And then John Cusack fell in love during the movie. But what was nice about it was we both were kind of precocious, and we probably would have just ended up being together just because that's what we were like. But we both were kind of taken. But it worked out very well because we ended up just really having like that tension and admiring one another. And he was doing a theater group with Tim Robbins. And I saw a play that they were doing, The Actors Gang. And I was just so impressed with this really brilliant play. And I just was like very impressed with John Cusack's intelligence and his thinking, his politics, everything was very... So I don't know. And his boldness as an actor and his braveness. And so it was really nice because we both... Yeah, I think we were kind of in love in a certain way, but we never fooled around. So that so, probably added to a kind of nice... Because, you know, you could, if you have an onset romance, I don't think it really matters. There's no rules, but it was nice in this case that we didn't let ourselves do that. So I want to move just for a second away from Say Anything, because I realized in sort of researching this, something that I had never noticed before, that you are in the opening scene of Wayne's World. And last week was the 30th anniversary of Mike Myers' debut on SNL. And obviously Wayne's World is, you know, a classic. I mean, it's the highest grossing Saturday Night Live film ever. Oh, right. Interesting, really. And it, it, I had just never realized when I watched it in the past that that was you in that opening scene with Rob Lowe. And so I'm curious if you just have any sort of fun stories from being on the set of that film. Well, Penelope Spears, she directed it. And so she's amazing. And she's so cool and just such a great person. She's just one of those like very authentic people. So she creates a great atmosphere. And I was pretty nervous because it's almost harder to do a scene with less dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Rob Lowe, I loved, you know, he's super nice. So everyone was really nice. And I was very happy. Like I was a fan of hers already. And I think I knew her as a person a little bit. And I just felt comfortable. But I was a little nervous because those short scenes are kind of weirdly harder to get. You know, you only have a couple lines to whatever. Like it just feels awkward in a weird way. And you just can hear it. It's like you overthink what you're sounding like. So that was a little nerve wracking. And I had to look kind of sexy, which I'm fine with, but I don't think of myself as like, I I think I'm wearing like a sort of sexy top. I mean, I'm not modest, but I also like don't, you know, I always think, oh, I don't look like that kind of girl, but I'm happy looking back when I see that scene, I've seen it whatever since, that I do look kind of like that type of girl, like a pretty girlfriend. Anyway, the whole thing was a good experience. And I feel like a because Rob Lowe is also sort of from the 80s, you feel this kind of camaraderie. Yeah, that's awesome. And then one final question, actually. So I noticed when I was getting ready for this interview, you're also a painter. Yeah. Your paintings are beautiful. Oh, thanks. I've always been kind of 
like very creative, ethereal type and is kind of against my nature actually to perform in a way, but I make myself do it and I love it. Like I've never once considered giving up acting just because I just, I don't know. I've never thought to give it up, but painting and drawing was, you know, probably like the first thing I was doing like a lot growing Mm. up. So that's one thing that I am sort of the least complicated about. But yeah, I do it and I sell them. I've done a couple shows, but I pretty much just sell like to friends or different people. You know, I do one and then sell it and do one and then sell it. So I'm kind of like, I haven't done it properly having big shows or anything, but I love it. Yeah, it's really good. Well, I'm looking at your website now and they're just beautiful. And we'll, if you don't mind, we'll link to the website in the show notes for the episode so folks can check it out. But Ioni, thank you so much. I'm so excited to get to talk to you and congrats on 30 years of one of truly, I believe, one of the greatest films of the 80s. It's just so good. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime. Okay, great. All right. Bye. Bye. Fun fact, a few hours after that conversation, I got to go hear the Indigo Girls play live with the Houston Symphony Orchestra, and it was outstanding. My friend and I even ran into them after the show, and I got to congratulate them on the 30th anniversary of their self-titled debut. Needless to say, it was a really fun week to be me, which is not always the case. Ioni and I actually talked quite a bit more, and you can hear the rest of our conversation by partnering with me at the Patreon link in the show notes for this episode for as little as $1 a month. Now, just a couple more things before I sign off for this episode. After the release of last week's episode, a friend who I really respect made a comment on Facebook expressing some frustration with the number of male guests I've had on the show so far compared to female guests. It's a valid critique and one that I felt compelled to share and respond to here. I want to reassure you, dear listeners, that any imbalance you hear in the weight given to various voices on this show is simply the result of logistical complications. I care deeply about representation for all in the shows I produce, whether that be around gender identity, race, religion, political leaning, sexuality, age, whatever. Please know that I'm committed to always strive to include the voices of all varieties of people. Thanks to my friend Diane for speaking up and keeping that priority at the forefront of my mind as I produce this show. There will almost certainly still be episodes down the line that don't feel quite balanced, But again, that will only ever be the result of logistical complications, never the result of indifference. Huge thanks to Nathan Schartz, Latifa Alatas, John Cusack, and Ioni Skye for being a part of this episode. And thank you so much for listening, friends. We'll be back next week with episode 10, looking back at what I believe to be one of the greatest sports films of all time, Field of Dreams. And if you're in Houston, be sure to mark your calendars for March 10th through the 12th. We'll be doing a live show at Houston's Comic Palooza 2019, looking back 30 years at the release of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Until then, be sure to follow us at 30pop on Facebook and Twitter and at 30pop podcast on Instagram. You can also subscribe to our brand new 30 Pop 1989 mixtape on Apple Music and Spotify to hear all the songs that were crushing the pop charts this week in 1989. There are links to all these things in the show notes for this episode. Until next week, in the immortal words of Cameron Crowe via Lloyd Dobler, keep looking for a dare-to-be-great situation. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Prawner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. 
check out more shows from Mill You Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1989 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>